Hello, this is Rachel Lynn, and you are listening to Upstage Left. This episode's guest really needs no introduction. She won this year's Tony Award for Best Actress in a Play for her performance as Dana H. in Lucas Nath's Dana H. Of course, I am talking about Dee Dee O'Connell. You may have also seen her more recently in Corsicana by Will Arbery at Playwrights Horizons. And I have to give Will a shout out here for connecting me with Dee Dee and helping to set this interview up. So thank you, Will. Not only am I a longtime fan of her work, as I'm sure many listeners are, but if you're an actor, I feel like you have to listen to this conversation. Not only is Dee Dee incredibly humble and down to earth, but she's also really honest about her journey and what it's taken to get to where she is, which is such a gift. This fall, you can catch Dee Dee in Sarah Rule's latest play, Becky, Nurse of Salem at Lincoln Center. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, please give us a follow on Instagram at Upstage Left Podcast or like or subscribe to the podcast. Here is Dee Dee O'Connell. Hi, Dee Dee. Hi. I'm so honored. And I'm actually really glad about what happened because, um, well, a little <laughs> for our listeners, I was actually supposed to speak with Dee Dee yesterday, but due to a scheduling snafu, we didn't we didn't make it happen. Yeah, and it was my, I pushed the erase button in my mind, <laughs> which I never do. So it was pretty exciting. And I was so proud of myself at the end of the day. Like, I did not look at my phone. Yes. And then I looked at it and I was like, no, but I want, I want to, I have to put things on, you know, you have to put things on there. Like people do with their emails. Like I'm on vacation. Yeah. Yeah. And out of office. Like I'm I need to learn to do that so that it's not a shock when people are like, dude, just didn't show up. But I was actually really glad because I was, I was waiting for you and I was really nervous and then what happened is I went to my friend Keshav's apartment. Do you know Keshav Mudliar? Yes. Yes. I do yes. know. Yes. So I was at his place and I was telling him what happened. And he was like, oh, Didi just, I'm, I guarantee you, Didi just didn't check her email and she forgot and she's going to get back to you. And I was like, you think so? Because what are the thoughts that they were going through your mind? Like, she just blew me off or... <laughs> Well, I didn't know. Well, I'm like, she won a Tony. A she's a really addict. big deal. Like yeah, big deal. And she's a heroin addict, which is a, a heady brew. <laughs> oh my God. But then I got less nervous because he was telling me these stories about you, about you at Lake Lucille. Yes. And we had such a nice time at Lake Lucille. Yeah. And we worked on Cherry Orchard. That's what he said. Cherry Orchard and Three Sisters with Lynn Cohen. Yeah. Yeah. And he told me the story about how the director encouraged everybody to ad lib and improvise to get to the text. And he said he was watching you and he was like, wow, she's really going off book, like really like going out there with her improvisations. And then he opened the script and he saw that you're actually word perfect, just saying (laughs) the lines. And he was like, wow, how does she do that? And I think that's, that is part of your magic is that you have the ability to make everything feel like it's being said for the first time out of your own head. The, that's and that's a particularly Lake Lucille. I don't know, like the, the, there's a sweet spot that over the years of working there, I feel like I, that's one of the reasons I love it there so much. And I don't know exactly how we got to it. It's partly just the the repetition of it and the fact that 
we've been working on those same texts for so long, but it's also, but I feel like it's also an indication of me not having the courage to actually do the exercise. (laughs) No, I'll, I'll, instead of doing the exercise, I'll show you my groovy technique of it, making it seem like I'm doing the exercise. When I was a kid, my sister and I used to have this game and I thought about it a lot when we were working on Corsicana where we would uh, sing a song to each other. She's like three years younger. So, you know, I'd be like, she'd be five and I'd be eight or something. And, and, and we'd sing a song to each other and we'd have to guess whether the other person was making the song up on the spot or whether they had learned it in school that day. So we got really good at like making it seem like we were doing something by rote when we were making it up and making it seem like we were making something up when we knew it by rote. So I guess that's the key. That's the key exercise. But with Will's play, there was so much about like creating songs and, and how spontaneous can you be in the moment for, for, you know, for the characters. Um, And that, so I thought about that little game that my sister and I had played and like Lucille is kind of like that. It's kind of like how, how much can we, we, I remember when we were working, we worked for years and years on the seagull. And I remember there was a certain point, like three years in towards the end of a long like month when I looked around at everybody and I felt like, well, now we're just like, we're so exhausted and we're just throwing balls into the, into the abyss because we always wanted to thrill each other. So we always wanted to do something that we had never done before. And then we just ran out of things we had never done before because we'd done like so many choices through Mm. each moment in the play. And we were also very tired, but it was a funny thing like, oh, now I'm just trying to come up with new stuff as opposed to find out what's really happening. And then as we worked on Seagull more and more, we got, and and we were, you know, we were like, we are going to really take this all the way out. We're going to make very eccentric choices. We're going to not, we're going to not presume anything about these relationships. And by the end of all that time, I felt like we were basically just doing the play. We were just doing the play that Chekhov had written. We had just found ourselves like coming full circle because Chekhov was right. (laughs) We didn't have to mess with it too much. We exhausted ourselves after three years and then we were just doing the play. (laughs) Wow. That's so beautiful. Do you bring that to your shorter processes that aren't in that group? I mean, I try to remember the feeling, but it's not really something you can fake is, is the sort of like wild search for the wild and the search for, and the, and the incredibly comfortable feeling and the exhaustion of being up all day and cooking and hanging out in August outside. You can't really fake it. I try to think about it and I try to, but you know, those things are all real. I feel like um, I try to be so ready technically, particularly as I get older, because I'm scared of not, I'm scared of the day when I can't learn learn my lines anymore. Um, That's, you know, the day. Um, So I try to be as prepared. That's one of the reasons why yesterday got completely lost because I'm trying to learn a new part. And so I was just like, all these hours just sitting in a chair. And I feel like if I'm technically as, as prepared as humanly possible, then I don't have to waste the time in rehearsal snuffling around for lines and snuffling around for the most basic stuff about the play. And then we can begin at a fairly advanced level. I think that's, I think I do that, but it doesn't mean that 
you really do get to get to that spot. And, you know, like mostly you're trying to figure out how are we going to do the play? Mm. You're not figuring out like what, 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 how can we change our lives by working on this play? You're really trying to understand like, what does the play need us to do every time we do it? That's the exploration. And you only have four weeks to figure that out. So it's pretty, it's pretty different. I feel like with the Lake Lucille things, we really are in a life. We're like, what, what is, what's the protein in here for my life right this second is kind of the work of it because it, the stakes are fairly low in the businessy sense. Although I think, think we all, all take them seriously and we, they seem very high when we're doing it. Mm. So, yeah, I would love to capture that. I mean, I feel like that's the key. Like if only you could capture that feeling of like, this is, this is for us. And also, you know, have the audience come and pay money. But I don't know if you, it's a really hard thing to do. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting that you say, like, the question of how do we make the play work? Because I can totally see doing that work on your own. But then there are so many other elements that you, as your role, your character, don't have control over in the room. Yeah, and then you, ha- then you have to just be like, well, now, now I've done everything I can do. And now I'll, I'll find out what. Uh, you know, the other people want to do, and I'll find out what, what everybody knows about this that I don't know, you know, the director and the writer know a lot of things. And I'm pretty, I think, I think I'm pretty open. I, I, I mean, I, sometimes I look at myself and I go like, Oh, I'm starting to turn into that old lady. Who's like, really, you want me to t- go to in the right door? Isn't the left door a better idea? You know, <laughs> turn into her a little bit, but I notice it and I'm like, stop, just go in the right door. Like the person asked you to Jesus. <laughs> And then do you do it on your, and then do you say like, but don't you think the left door was better? If I'm right. <laughs> but sometimes I'm not. I mean, you know, at a certain point, you, you, you definitely, you can just see like the mistake. You can see like, I'll be able to see the, you know, gun if I come in that door. If I come in the other door, then I can pretend I don't see it. You know, there's just things like that. But, but uh, often then, particularly like with Sam Gold, he'll say, no, it doesn't matter. You can see the gun right then. And I'll be like, yeah, I can. And then of course he'll be completely right. Like, why was I thinking I shouldn't be able to see it? Of course I can see it. You know, so mm. I'll, I'll make a, some, I'll jump ahead and try to solve, solve the problems. My brain just does that. It's like, solve the problem, solve the problem. And, and uh, Sam in particular is he, ne- he never, <laughs> he never, uh, Almost never does he go like, oh, Dee, you were right. You should come in the right door. He'll usually be like, just come in the left door. <laughs> and then he'll start to, I bet he's thinking, you know, and then he'll gradually start to like deactivate uh, that part of my brain that's like solving the problem, solving the problem so that I can actually work. <laughs> hmm. The solving the problem part of the brain is so, I think for certain people, it's like very hard to turn off, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's hard for me to turn mine off. But I like it when it's turned off. Let's go to the beginning. How did you come <laughs> <laughs> before all of this? How did you come to acting? Um, my in my the house I grew up in had a lot of interest in theater. My mom is a playwright. My dad and mom both did a lot of you know amateur plays when I was a kid, and then and then moved to Seattle when I was in my forties, I think. And my mom became a professional actress. And they both always were in plays. And so it was very, it was very much like a part of my growing up that we would 
be in the plays at the town players or the Kiwanis club, that sort of thing. And I, I think I always felt like it was the most comfortable place for me. I was not, a, I was not, I was shy and, you know, awkward and, and all those things that so many actors were. And so and then there was this one place where I was like, wait a second, I can be Peter Pan. So I was, I was very much that classic kid that, you know, was, was only really released and not shy in that situation. But I didn't think I would do it for a job. I'm not sure why. I think I, I, th- I think I felt like, um, I think I felt around the age when you're supposed to be deciding what you're going to do with your life, that I, that the privilege of growing up the way I did in a, in a sort of academic middle-class household meant that you had to do something very effective in the world because otherwise it was a waste of that privilege. So I thought, oh, I should be like a lawyer. That seems like a thing you could do in the world. If you learned all those skills, you could actually become a very effective person. Mm. But I had no gift for it at all. I had no gift for academics. I had no gift for, there was no way. And I learned that very quickly. So then I was a little lost. What age was this when you were deciding? Probably like, 20 or 19, my parents would laugh because my, my grades were so bad. The, the idea that I could ever pull that off is crazy. But I mean, not that I'm stupid, but I just didn't have, I just was never disciplined enough. So it, it just kind of, I kind of fell back into doing theater when I, I dropped out of college and then I w- was living in Boston, trying to sort of find my way, working at a dry cleaners and then took a workshop with a Grotowski based theater company and ended up being caught up in the culty cult world of doing experimental theater. <laughs> oh man. Years. Grotowski's like about endurance, right? Like you're doing mm-hmm. plastiques for six hours until you lose your yeah. mind. Yes. Yeah, very, yeah. Very much. I liked that sort of thing. I liked to be, you know, pushed to the to the limit of my, my brain. That's yeah. a kind of discipline. That's like the opposite, yeah, exact opposite of being a lawyer. Yeah. But it's not it's not exactly a way to be effective in the world. <laughs> Yes, everyone should get to do experimental theater. I mean, they they should ultimately, but yeah. So that's kind of how how that happened, if I think about it. And then, and then I did that for a long time. I I was in several different little theater companies, and and um, finally sort of realized that being in that kind of culty cult toxic <laughs> situation. Oh, there's always a charismatic leader. There's always crazy politics. There's always a lot of rage and, and, uh, you know, you feel like you've got to be torn down and built up again. And I don't know, it's, it's just been an interesting time, right? When you're thinking like all these assumptions that we made about how to become a great artist, especially if you're young, are being questioned. And I grew up thinking you just had to be torn down to the core. And then built up again, and you had to put your trust in somebody and let them do that to you. And that's how you could possibly become great. And, you know, it's just, uh, it means that you're you're traumatizing yourself on purpose. Mm. You could walk away. It's very weird, you know. So And so now friends of mine who teach and stuff and say, like, you know, kids will be like, I'm being triggered. I have to leave the room. And I'm like, isn't getting triggered the point when you're in acting class? Don't you, aren't you searching for triggers? You know, don't, aren't you like saying, what are my triggers? Like, that's the work. 
Mm. It's so confusing to me because I'm like, and then I start to think, well, what if, what will the world be like when when a sort of a sort of uh, viciousness leaves teaching? Maybe there will be such a blossoming of people actually being able to become great artists, greater artists, and and uh, yeah, maybe it will lead to a real a real blossoming of a different kind of a different kind of artist. It, I mean, it's really a question I have because mm. the work itself is so traumatizing. You don't really have to add trauma to it. Yeah, <laughs> the I'm- fact. People show up at eight o'clock every day is plenty. You do you mean for like open calls and auditions and things like that? Or do you or, mean just like or just or just performing at all, just being in a play? Oh my god, yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely the process. The process itself. Yeah, everything about it is just like you're putting yourself in a situation where you're gonna be completely uncomfortable and, and terrified. So it's, it's yeah. But anyway, I would I had an appetite for a certain amount of abuse, and so I went for that. Mm. Mm. And then I realized that I, I hated it and I couldn't do it anymore. And I wanted to get out of that gang. And so I moved to New York City. You know, there were steps to this. But at a certain point, I thought, oh, what I really need to do is just learn how to act, be a regular actor in a regular plays. And um, then I'll be in and out in three month increments and I won't end up in these traumatic, insane relationships. Which, you know, that was a decision. And I sort of didn't know how to act. I knew how to do these crazy things, but I didn't know how to just talk. <laughs> Where did you go to learn how to talk? Because I think that's also something people say about you is they're always like, Didi O'Connell knows how to talk like a person. I went to Mira Rostova. Mira Rostova was a Russian teacher. Uh, she had a little twice a week workshop somewhere in Chelsea. It was in the loft in Chelsea. She was a genius. She had been Monty Clift's teacher. While I was there, she was Jessica Lang's teacher. She was a she's a great, great acting teacher. Extremely tough, extremely precise, and very much about text. Just breaking down text, learning how to understand what text is, how it works. Um, very not in, not involved in your personal life. Not involved in how you get there. If your character is supposed to cry or or have a terrible thing happen to them or fall in love. Not, not interested in talking about how you do that. She was like, you do that, but this is how it will have to be (laughs) when you talk. And she, it was, I mean, line by line. Some days you would go in there and you would get out one line and she'd be like, nope, nope, nope. And she would just keep going back and back and back, trying to break down like why people actually approach their conversations with each other decide to speak to each other and why they don't and so often in plays there's this um and I would see it with with the other actors especially the ones that had been with her for a long time where you would just you would just see this sense of reality that was that was breathtaking and you'd be and you couldn't figure out the science of it like why why is it this and not that? You would see a really good actor do something really good, and then you would see Mira go in with them and break it, break it up, and talk about the doings. She had these, you know, very technical terms about like what is a person doing when they are talking, and there were there were only five things, and there were, and it was very precise. And 
So you sort of do the math of it. It was almost like Tetris. And then, and then you would find the sweet spot of like why the person is talking. And, you know, silly examples would be like the, the trees are green. Did the person just tell you that the trees are blue? That's one thing. Uh, are you, have you not looked up and looked at the trees for a long time and you're suddenly surprised at that fact? Uh, that, you know, there's all, it could, it could be for a million reasons, but it's got to be extremely like spot on and figured out. Now, I don't go back into scripts and do my mirror homework anymore. And in fact, Mira, you know, after I'd been with her for five or six years, I had to leave her because I couldn't, I thought I can't even, I, I can never get ahead of her. I would mm. bring her a script that I was working on and I would never have, have second guessed. I would never have gotten it all right. You know, <laughs> and I was like, yeah. as her, when I just have to be like, this is my equipment. I get to have the things that she's taught me, but I'm, ne- but I can't be thinking I'm going to get totally mirified here. But some people did get mirified and it was remarkable. I saw people that were like bad actors in three years or something, just turn into brilliant actors, just like this painstaking technical script analysis. She'd mostly work with Chekhov and Williams. Those were her favorites, but she'd work on anything you brought in. And I started to do privates with her and just bring her everything that I had to do. And and that really helped me learn how to talk. What were you striving for when you were, or even now, like when you say there were bad actors who became good actors, what is it that you were seeing change? What were you all getting at? I don't know. I mean, it's easy to say things like a sense of reality or something, but what is it? What is it really? I guess the quality of being, of of living in something, the quality of, um, I remember living downstairs from a actor when I first moved to New York and they would do readings upstairs and I would um, be sitting downstairs thinking like, why, when we start doing a reading, do we sound so fake? Why? And then when the reading's over and everybody starts talking, you can tell the second that they're, st- that they're starting to talk like people. Like, what is that thing that we do as actors? Like, what is it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's we're projecting because the audience has tears. But, but there's also just like a, you, you're, ju- you're just off. You're just, you're, it's, it's like having a tin ear about what reality actually feels like. A tin ear about how someone could continue to talk about a certain subject for so long. Like Will's writing is very challenging that way because he he has people who who will keep going, who will keep going. And you have to just keep finding like why, who's the person that would that would keep talking. Mm-hmm. Even if the, it wasn't utterly clear that the person that they were talking to understands what they're saying. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and then you, and you have and you have to you have to solve that or you just feel like you, you you feel embarrassed. You feel embarrassed as the actor, as the actor, but as the character too, right? Oh, oh, oh yeah. You feel embarrassed that as the actor, yeah. You feel. I mean, it's being embarrassed. Hmm. It's avoiding embarrassment. <laughs> Do you find that you you start? Okay, so thinking about this idea of when we do a reading, we sound like we're doing a reading and then yeah. we all like, so do you, do you if, find if, 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 if who, there, whoever lives downstairs, maybe we should sound the same. Just start there and see what that means. Yeah. 
Like, is that what you do? Do you do that? Like, just try to say like, I do, sometimes I do like when I first started doing TV and movie auditions, you know, and they're always like, yeah, the theater actors are just, they're just too big. You know, they're just too big. And I, and I had this idea like, Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll make sure that whatever I do, you know, unless you're like supposed to be being killed on the subway tracks or something, which would happen. But, but if you're just supposed to be like, you know, interviewing someone for the position of the bank manager or something in your audition, talk the same as I was talking to the people before the audition started, you know? So you're like, hi, how are you? No, the traffic's terrible today, blah, 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 blah. And then you start talking. And I just would do this sort of, somebody even said it to me one time. I think my friend, my friend named, um, I'm not going to think of her name. She said it. She was like, okay, this is what I do. I, I talk exactly the same. So they can't tell the difference. They can't tell when the audition started. And then they're like, oh, oh, that person isn't one of those overacting theater actors. Okay. And then she said, then she would do it. I didn't always have the balls to do this. And then she said, and then at a certain point, I've memorized it and I th- put the script down. And then at a certain point, I like turn up the temperature and show them some, you know, like, <laughs> so she had something, and she, she, Le, Le, Lynette McGee, Lynette McGee. She's the one that told me that. <laughs> wow. Did you do that? Did you employ that in your audition? I, I, I could do the first one. The other two, I, I could never throw the script aside. <laughs> you didn't throw the script down. <laughs> I, mean, I, like, I could put it down gently, but I couldn't be like, fuck this. I don't need this damn thing. I feel these feelings. I couldn't ever bring myself to do that. But oh my she, God. Like, she was a diva. That's amazing. <laughs> Did she book the job? Doing she booked the- a lot of jobs. She booked a lot of jobs. Wow. Okay. You heard it here first. That's a technique. Did you like auditioning? Were you successful at auditioning in your like when you're starting out? No, I was not successful at it. I didn't like it. Um, I still don't like it. I get mad. I get mad that it's happening, which is not good. What do you get mad about? The amount of time that's being wasted because you don't know if you're actually going to do this. And so you've had to spend all this time preparing something that you don't know if you're going to actually do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I get mad about that. I'm not one of those people like, an opportunity to act. I'm like, no. um and i would i would uh be scared and nervous and feel like it was a real measure of you know a measure of so much more than just whether i was going to get this job or not it was a measure of whether i was any good i i feel like anything could happen to me and i could have a bad audition and it will take me like 48 hours to get over the bad audition no matter what else good stuff is happening you feel like it's an opportunity for this feeling of like, oh, but I actually don't know what I'm doing. Actually, I'm a fake. Mm. So auditions are very delicate. I mean, there were times when I was younger and there, and it would be pilot season and I'd have like four auditions in a day and I'd have to put on my mini skirt and be running around doing them. And there was a certain amount of adrenaline and a certain amount of exhaustion that made me less self-conscious. And I would sort of feel like I'm on a roll with these. I'm on a roll with them. And it was sort of fun. But in general, I wasn't I wasn't good at it. And it took me a long time to get an agent or, or start to get jobs that um, I was here for years before I could get an agent. Because my auditions were so bad. <laughs> Around when was that? How many years had you been knocking on people's doors? Yeah, like four, four, five, six. Okay, that's not so long, I don't think. In maybe not, maybe not. But I feel like it feels long when you're in it. Yeah, it feels long when you're in it because you don't know if it's ever going to end. Yeah. So you, so you think like every year that goes by, the, the world is trying to tell you, 
you can stop now. This is really not working. You know? Yeah. What kept you going? In this, at the same time as really, as I was failing, there were enough situations where I was mentored and pulled along by another thing. Like, I think literally one week I auditioned for the seagull in Williamstown. And it was when Nikos ran Williamstown and I auditioned for him. And he literally, I mean, it was not literally, but, all, you know, ripped me a new asshole. He was just like, who, who got you this audition? And someone had gotten it for me. I didn't have an agent. And I said, um, I don't know. I think it was Tom Fontana or something. He said, how, what made him think that, that you had the right to be in my presence? Oh my God. And I was like, I don't know. And he said, you can't speak. You can't move. You must go to England. You must study for five years and then you can come and audition for me. But if, until you do that, I never want to see you again. And I was like, whoa, I walked out of there. And I was distra- I was just like, couldn't stop crying. I remember just like, I remember where I was. I was in Midtown. And I remember just like trudging my way down to the East Village, just weeping uncontrollably. And around that exact same time, there was an audition in backstage for three sisters. A guy named Larry Sackrell was starting a company up in uh, upstate New York called River Repertory. He was looking for people to be in three sisters. And I went in and read for him at West Beth. Uh, for Irina, and he said at the end of my audition, "Do you want to stay with me here? With my, me and my girlfriend are going to open a bottle of wine. Do you want to stay and have, drink some wine with us? You're going to play Irina." And I was like, "Yes, I do." And that happened in the same week, so I was like, I was getting a lot of mixed signals from the world. So mm. fortunately I was getting enough good signals. So I went and worked at River Arts for like nine years. I ended up working there. Wow. And had, they were like mentors. You know, there were situations that I didn't even quite realize were people just taking me on and, and then just giving me like great, great challenging stuff to do way before I was ready to do it. I ended up getting to be like, do as you like it up there and did all the checkoff plays and, then met Len Jenkins and met a lot of cool experimental writers. And it was a great place for me to be. And it grew at the same rate as I did sort of. So by the end, you know, Joanne Woodward was doing the seagull and I was in the seagull with her and, you know, you know, it sort of like lifted me up summer by summer. In the meantime, I'd go back to New York and wait on tables all year. And then the next summer would come and I'd get to do this like fancy, fancy thing for three weeks and then go wait on tables for another year. So it was very like, just this, but I had that toehold. And La Mama, Ellen Stewart took a liking to me. So she pulled me along and put me in things and just told people to cast me. There were a few people like that that just took me on. Did you feel like an outsider at that time? Did you feel like, man, I have these people who love me, but also like, why can I work at Williamstown or Lincoln Center or like whatever? Did you yeah, feel that? For sure. And how did you reconcile that? Um, it's funny, like you look back and you're like, I should have just so appreciated what I had and not, not worried about that. But I wanted those things. But I also would then hold them in disdain a little bit, I guess, you know, as a way to handle it. Mm. Um, 
it felt like they were parallel universes and they didn't necessarily cross over for a lot of people, but it's hard to make a living off of Broadway. So then finally, when I started to make a living off Broadway, which means I was, you know, I did like three plays one year and I, at the end of that realized, oh, you can't make a living off Broadway either. I see. <laughs> oh. I mean, why I hadn't done the math before. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I like to, I like to warn people. You're going you're gonna to get to the end of your best year where you worked at Manhattan Theater Club and Playwrights Horizons and Lincoln Center, and you will have no money in your bank account. And, and that's just true. It's so depressing. <laughs> but I thought that I thought that if you worked, you know, consistently on Broadway, you would be making sort of a living. It's not true. That's probably beautiful that you didn't know that before, like in the deciding age of like, what am I going to do with my life? Right. Because had you known, would you have still done this? Yes, I would have, because I think that one of the things that I was not afraid of is being poor. I, mm. I wasn't really scared of it. I always felt like I could wait on tables or do something. Mm. So I, 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 and I know people who grew up poor, who being poor is, is just terrifying. And then it's really it's harder to be an actor because it mm. won't help you with that, you know, or a theater actor. So you you were like, I'm okay with this lifestyle. Yeah, I live in the same apartment that I've lived in for 45 years. It has a bathtub in the kitchen. It's a little tenement. <laughs> so, now I also have this, which TV bought. <laughs> mm. I also did like six years of bad TV, and so I get to have this porch. <laughs> oh man. TV, never yeah. the twain shall meet. Never did not buy this porch. <laughs> when did you start getting jobs where you're like, okay, like I'm, I'm a working actor. I'm doing it. Um, when I was 30, I got a job understudying uh, Marianne Plunkett on the national tour of Agnes of God. That was the first time I had ever made any money as an actor. And I think from then on, I didn't have another job. Is that true? I didn't wait on tables after that. I might have iron sheets. There was a photo studio where I would iron sheets for $5 an hour that, you know, they would take pictures of beds for like JC Penny catalogs. <laughs> I might have ironed sheets for a while more, but I didn't wait on tables anymore. So when I came back from that, then I, then I started to do more regional theater. So I worked at Trinity and did Fool for Love with Richard Jenkins. I started to just do more regional theater because I was like, I got to make a living. And then at a certain point went, oh, if you could just become a regional theater actor and actually make enough to live, but you can't get a job in New York. So you have to really commit to being in New York. So I committed to being in New York. And at that point, I might have started earning, earning some sheets again and then started to work in New York and then had the wake up call. Oh, you actually are, can be completely broke by doing this and you can have a great year. And then I moved to LA. I was like 40. So I'd say 10 years in, I moved to LA and did TV for maybe six years. Oh, wow. So you got to LA and they were like, New York actress. Yes, you're hired. Was it uh, easy? It wasn't, quite, it wasn't quite easy, but it was it was easier than I thought it was going to be. And I feel like I took advantage of the last like chunk as an, you know, I would have been aged out pretty soon. So it was the last chunk of like, I can be the sidekick best friend of Lindsay Wagner in the made-for-TV movie, I'm still that girl. Five years later, I wouldn't have been able to. So it was it was a good 
I did it at 40. I, you know, at 35, you could have made more money. But <laughs> Were you the kind of actor who, it, I feel like people who come from an experimental background have a less of a tendency to do this, but did you type yourself? Did you make business decisions? Yes. You did. Yes, that in that in that in those years, yes. I was like, I am going to make as much money as I possibly can as quickly as I can and get out of this. So I was completely like, if I if I can do two series at the same time, if I can I I was just like, this is what I'm here for, this is what I'm doing. I, I didn't want to do stuff I hated truly, but I did do some stuff I hated. Were you good at it? Are you good at doing stuff you hate? Mm, I wasn't bad. <laughs> but I didn't I didn't want to I, I I probably would have quit acting pretty soon when I when I moved back to New York. I was on the verge of quitting acting. I wasn't bad at it, but it was it cost too much, you know. It cost too much. It was very costly, surprisingly costly. Like I was depressed a lot, and it, it was this combination of <coughs> being slightly spiritually bored and very anxious, because it wasn't like easy. It wasn't easy. It was very hard. Those things are very hard to do. They're hard to do well. And, you know, they'll throw new pages at you on the day of and stuff. So there's a lot of anxiety about it. So I was doing a lot of anxiety management. And I also felt embarrassed by the work. So I wasn't going to be able to do it forever. But I did see that I needed to make money. You know. Did you bill yourself a certain way? What were the things that you did to help yourself? Because not everybody gets to work once they decide they want to do TV or make money, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I have a thing where I pretended that I was talking, that I would t- try to talk in the same voice when I was auditioning as when I talked. <laughs> right. <laughs> I had my trick. Um, you know, I, um, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't wildly successful, but the things that I ended up being able to do, but, it, but there was definitely like a niche. There was like sidekick, best friend of the main girl. There was like trailer trash, trailer trash mom. There was, there were, you know, there were niches that you could depend on me for old whore. Um, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> um, but then also librarian, you know, <laughs> Mm. you know you old whore and librarian classic (laughs) pairing (laughs) and were you married at that time or were you in a relationship no no No, when I moved out there I wasn't um by the time I really left um I was with the same person I'm with now who I met he was directing a movie that I was in and we became we fell in love and we were there out there for a couple years and then I was just kind of like I gotta come back to New York and and be in plays so we kind of split our time do you feel like your personal life was put on hold a little bit before your career? Do you do you ever dream or daydream about your life taking a different shape than it has? I don't think I, I think being an actor meant that having a kid would have been I would have had to have such a different life. Not not because of the time, but because of the money. So I think I might have had a kid with a lot more ease if I if I wasn't an actor. And uh, those years when I would have gone after that more clearly, I knew that I couldn't afford to do it myself. I wasn't in a relationship with somebody where that, you know. So yeah, I mean, there was a point just towards the end of those years when you when you're really thinking about having a kid, and I was like, 
If I got a TV series right now that was like ER, like guaranteed you're going to be a millionaire, I would adopt a kid today. And I would adopt a kid on my own today. But that that it would have to be so specific. I would not adopt a kid and then be like, and now I'm going to come back and work off Broadway in New York. And me and my kid are going to live in my 10 minute apartment. I don't, I don't think that would have worked. I mean, I am filled with admiration with people who pull it off, but the math of it really is, is a mind boggling how you're supposed to do it. Especially when you, when you can't plan and you can't plan that you're going to have a certain amount next year. And it's hard thing. Yeah. I probably would have ended up staying in LA and doing that. You know, I think that's what people do. So it sounds like you've always been really committed to making your life work with this career. And I'm just curious, what is the driving thing at a younger age? Were you like, I know I need to do this because X, Y, and Z, or was it just the thing that made you feel most free? And so you followed it. It was the thing that made me feel most free. It was the place where I met my compadres the most, mm-hmm. you know, especially in my life in New York. I, that was one of the things that was sad for me about doing television was that I didn't, I couldn't automatically presume that I was going to find compadres in a cast. And I can almost always presume I'll find compadres in a cast. And it's just a weird group of people that want to do this. And it's like, I don't know, it's a funny combination of like being brainiacs, but also leading with heart and also being willing to put yourself in terrifying situations and being curious about certain, certain kinds of questions. And it's, it's just, uh, you, you often make friends. You don't necessarily keep them because you're, you, when you're in that situation where you're, you're showing up and doing your work all the time, it's easy. And then, then there's a, then once in a while, there's people that you like manage to stay close with, but but during the time when you're working, you, you, you bond in this way that I've gotten used to and that I love. I think, I think it's, uh, I think when you're younger, I think it's sexual. I think it has a lot to do with like mating. I think it has a lot to do with finding mates. <laughs> and it becomes this, this way of, of uh, calling out to each other. and. I feel like that's a strong force. And, and I thought a lot as I got older and older about what is the, well, as, as I got older, less and less was I being given love stories. And I realized at a certain point, like, oh, I miss them so much. Part of the joy of it for me was the being in the throes of some kind of love story whether it was a destructive love story or a good love story or something, but it had to do with love. And it had to do with me being able to feel powerful that way or helpless that way, or just in the throes of it. And it's almost adolescent. It's almost like you get to be permanently in your adolescence, in your obsessive creating yourself into a woman. You're doing that over and over again. And when it stopped being about that, just because I'm older, hormones are different and the roles are different, I had to really look at like, well, what is it if it's not that? If that's not what it is anymore. And then it started to seem like what what fills that 
or what maybe that always was. And I, you just can't feel it because you're so in the the throng of, you know, your, your, your hormones and your, it's the wrong, the right word, you know, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's all you can feel Yeah, is uh, that it has to do with the world. It has to do with, it has to do with trying to understand the world. It has to do with trying to understand how it works. It has to do with trying to make it better. It has to do with trying to participate in the, the ritual of cleansing, the ritual of healing, the ritual, you know, all these things that seem a little highfalutin to me, but that, but I think they, it, it, it has to do with all those things too. And they felt like they were sex when I was younger, but they're, they're, they're actually everything. I mean, and don't get me wrong. A love story is still a love story. Love story is still the, the bomb, but the other stuff. Yeah. And, and when I'm, when I'm happy working, I feel very stimulated in a way that I feel like I'm really lucky. Like, I don't know. I think about that. I think about people with regular jobs and how they end up getting caught up in weird religious situations or weird relationships or weird, like what it is to not have that outlet mm-hmm. where you actually can pretend that what you're doing is the most important thing in the world, which I think theater is. We get to pretend that we're doing the most important thing in the world, even though it's obvious that if it doesn't happen, it's not the end, especially after the pandemic. It's just like, We'll be fine if somebody gets COVID and we can't do our play tonight. We're not going to die. But you act as if you're going to die. Like, we could no. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're like, am I getting the email? We'll be fine. But the, but the contract is that we won't be fine. You know, that, that like, you have, to, <laughs> you have to. I remember, like, um, I was doing a play with David Rashi. And he, uh, he did this TV show for a long time called Sledgehammer, where he played a cop. So he's... He's uh, beloved by, I mean, this is, this is years ago, so I don't know if this is still true, but he was beloved by cops and he was, he was doing something for like, you know, the cops baseball league or something at award something. And it was the thing that he was doing was like at six 30 and our show was at eight. He, and he was going to be late for the curtain and they drove him from Brooklyn where he was into Manhattan in a car and they were able to change the timing of the lights so that wow. they have green lights the whole way, which is the thing I guess they can do if it's a real emergency. <laughs> so he got to the theater and he was like, they got me here, man. They did. They put on the special thing. And maybe this is all made up, but I don't think so. They did, they did this special thing where they can make the lights turn green and we got here. And he was like, you know, it was like eight o'clock when he got there. And I was like, what? Wow. And there was a kid in our play. And the kid misunderstood what David had said. And he thought that David meant that if you were an actor and you were going to be late for your curtain, you could walk up to a cop and say, I'm going to be late for my curtain. And as we all know, this is the most important thing in the whole world is theater. The cop would let you get in their car. They would put on their siren and they would get you to the theater. <laughs> wow. Did the kid try it? No, but, oh, no, but it was thought- a couple of weeks before I realized that he had misunderstood it. We were talking about it and like, wow, that day when David did it. And he was like, yeah, so so if that ever happens to me. And I was like, what do you mean if that ever happens? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that, idea that the whole world takes it so seriously. No, 
No, nobody cares but us, but we care so much. Yeah. Well, I have one last question before I let you go, I guess. I mean, I have so many more questions. I could talk forever, but. No, it's fun. We could talk. To respect your time. So you mentioned when you were like 45 and you were in LA, you were thinking about leaving the biz. Yeah. You had a moment you were going to quit acting. Yeah. Looking back now from where you are, having just won the Tony, and I didn't even talk about how you won a sustained excellence award in 2005. And then this year you won a lifetime achievement award, a Lucille Lortel. The words keep saying like, you can stop now. You could stop. stop. I, I mean, I, I'm curious Please. about like, how does it feel? <laughs> how does it feel to win these awards? Yes. Um, it, it's great. It feels great. I, 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 you know, I try to think sometimes what would it feel like if I wasn't winning, if I hadn't won any of them, is there, a, is there a, and I think there is an encouragement that comes from it that gives me that quiets the the negative voices a little bit. And so that's nice to have the negative voices quiet. They're not, they haven't shut up, but they, but they, uh, they have some competition. So that's good. But you also do feel the negative voices get to do a new thing, which is like, people are coming to see this to see if you really deserved that. (laughs) So I get to, I get to have a whole drama with that idea. To everybody listening, D.D. So O'Connell clever. has negative voices. So it's, <laughs> the voices it's okay. are so clever. They'll find a way to turn a Tony Award into a nightmare. <laughs> Literally, I would have that thought. Like the next few shows, of course, Connell would come out and say, be like, people go like, I don't get it. I just don't get it. What? What's <laughs> oh, my God. It's great when she's not really having to talk. That must be <laughs> No. <laughs> No, but this kind of ties back to that question. Like, so thinking back, I'm sure your negative voices were different when you were about to quit this biz. What would you tell yourself to keep going? How do you not leave this business? I think it's, I think, I think I was lucky in in that when I came back to New York, there were just a couple of things that I got to do right away. I mean, I, I think it's so much, it's so much like these weird kismets of being you're available for this weird kismet, but there were these two things. David Espiorenson was directing both of them. He was like, you have to be in these two things. He cast me. And so I, I immediately was like on, on a train and I had expected that I was going to have to come back to New York and I was going to be kind of in a limbo where nobody knew who I was. And I was going to be doing readings maybe for a couple of years before I started to get a play in the theater again. And I was expecting that. And I was, and I was like, all right, that's what I'll do. I remember I saw my friend Betsy Adam in a play and my friend Jay Smith Cameron in a play and, and Christine Nielsen in a play. I'd come back to New York for a visit and I saw the three of them in plays during, in one week. And I was like, holy cow, they have become the, 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 what what they are now and what they were five years ago, they are divas now. They have these chops that you, the only way you get those chops is to be on stage all the time. They have grown into these ferocious, deep actresses. I, I don't know how they're doing what they're doing. I don't know how they're that funny. I don't know how they're that smart. I don't know how they're doing it. And I have to come back and learn how to do it again because <laughs> I was so inspired by those three performances. And so that was part of it. It was just like, I was so jealous of the, of, of, of the creatures that they had become 
and they had always been really good actresses, but there was something that it, there was some like leap that had happened in their forties, you know, and, and I was like, oh, I want to know about that. It was a scary thing because you thought you were told and the world seemed to reinforce the idea that there would be less and less work just because as you're an older, an older woman, there would be less work. So I was kind of, well, there's going to be less work on television too. So do I want to be here in that drama where I'm watching, you know, terrified about my face not looking good enough? Or do I want to be in the drama of just there not being enough literature for an older woman? I'd rather be in the drama of the literature. I think that's going to be a little healthier. <laughs> but I was wrong. The literature did not stop. And I think that's partly that it's changed. I'm not sure. I mean, you'd have to you'd have to have somebody really do the math of it. There may, I'm sure that there are less roles for older women than there are for older men, for sure. But probably more than there were 20 years ago and probably more than there were 10 years ago. So I think I'm, I, I think I arrived at a moment when it wasn't, the world wasn't quite as cut and dried about that. Yeah. And I knew what it was. I knew what it was going to be. I knew, I knew that I was going to be, not making very much money. I was re- I was ready for that. And at that time, the New York LA thing was very distinct. Like you went to LA to make money and you lived in New York to do theater. Now you can live in New York and have a TV career, which is fantastic. Mm. It's very different. It's very different. So you don't have to make that 3000 mile choice. You could, you can do both. You can pull that off. So that's easy. It's better. It's better. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that That's better. <laughs> you know, have to live in Los Angeles. I mean, there was no money exchanging hands in New York at all, except on Law and Order. Oh yeah, and a couple of indies and stuff. There was, just wasn't an industry, and now there's huge, maybe more than LA. Well, thank you, Didi. Thank you. This has been amazing. <laughs> yeah, talking about money a lot. <laughs> it's an important subject. <laughs> it is. It is. We talked about a lot of stuff, though. Is there any last thought you want to add? So that we don't leave it on capitalism? <laughs> no, I think that's a, just for me to say. We talked about money less, probably. <laughs> you want a Tony, so pay her more, I guess, is the message. Everybody listening, pay her. <laughs> <laughs> pay, 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 the, pay the actors more. Pay the actors more. Pay the actors more. Pay the actors more so they can have more complicated lives and yeah, don't have to make these harsh, harsh choices. Yeah. Wow, y'all. That was Dee Dee O'Connell. I learned so much talking to her. Oh my god. I hope you did as well. If you liked the episode, please share it with a friend. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Until next time, have a great day. <laughs>